Today's reading is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18, and the verses are printed in your leaflet on the screen, and they're also on page 1871 of the Church Bible. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire. You were not pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Thank you so much, Mel. I'm going to do something I thought I would never do and preach from a device. So hopefully it all goes well. Good morning, everybody. My name's Cam. Sometimes we need help focusing on something or appreciating something uh, because it isn't real enough to us in some way. So I don't mean keeping up a train of thought, not that type of focus, right? I'm thinking of a different sort. The struggle to really believe that something that's kind of abstract in some way is, is real. So here's some examples. Um, it could be something from the future. Marin has a bottle of wine on her shelf, which is her reward for finishing her PhD. That's something in the future. Hard to grasp. Hard to imagine a time when it's done. The wine is a small, concrete reminder of that future thing that she is trying to realise. And hopefully she picked one that ages well. <laughs> It could be because the thing doesn't exist yet. 
So creators of all sorts, trying to realize their artistic vision, they may draw inspiration from more immediate and concrete things, like a mood board, or a model, or from other artworks. Another example is just concepts, okay? So most of us are probably all right, for the most part, at mental arithmetic these days, but maths is actually pretty abstract. Children can't get their heads around it. They have to focus on something more concrete. If I have two apples and I take away one apple, how many apples do I have left? That sort of thing. Last thing, last example. Things we've got no physical experience with. So I'm a swimmer, and there's nothing very intuitive about swimming well. I tra in training, I use all sorts of tools to grasp what I'm meant to do. A pull boy helps me feel the position I'm supposed to hold in the water, or paddles help me feel what a good catch feels like, helps me make that abstract thing more real. All of these are ways that we are able to reckon with something, as I've said, sort of not real enough, in some sense, hard to grasp, make it more real. Something impossible to grasp for many people is a personal creator God. Even harder to believe for real is what that God is like, his love, his grace. The passage this morning tackles one of the key ways that God's people have been able to experience God and his grace a little more concretely, a little more immediately throughout history. So far in Hebrews, we have seen the better priest, the better covenant, the better sanctuary, and today we come to the better sacrifice. Does that sound repetitive to you? Are some of you already tuning out because you're thinking, I know the answer, Jesus is better, right? Why has this taken 10 chapters? Let me see if I can set this repetition up in a better light for us. It's like a musical canon. You know, Packerbell's canon. We heard a little bit of it earlier. The melody keeps repeating again and again, one over top of another. But you wouldn't say it's repetitive. It's layered, harmonic. The same theme is richer with each addition. A lot of the Bible is like that, and Hebrews definitely is. And I think a good way to experience that richness is to dig into some of the theology. In the passage today, the basic logic is obvious. It's exactly the same as the rest of the book so far. Jesus is better. In this chapter, we need sacrifice for sin. The old ones weren't good enough. Jesus is better. Okay, simple. But as we go through this morning, I'm going to pause on a couple of loaded theological ideas. We're going to think more about sin, and we're going to think more about sacrifice, and make sure we're really reckoning with those as fully as the Bible does. This will help us to better feel the force of a passage like this. No apologies if parts seem a little technical. Stick with me, because that sort of texture it actually gets us past just that head knowledge. You know, Jesus is better sacrifice, tick, done. That's a surface understanding. It's important. But what we want, we want to feel the, the undercurrents. Some theology can help turn a passage we might have thought was repetitive into worship.
Okay, so let's get started. The first part of the passage, old sacrifices could not make the worshipper perfect. It's the first four verses. And they're clear that the old sacrificial system wasn't really good enough, was it? Why is that? Well, it was never meant to be. Verse one, the law is a shadow, not the true form. And just quickly here, the law, as it's referred to here, it's about the sacrificial system. And that's actually only a small part of the whole law that was handed down to Israel through Moses. But this writer is only talking about the sacrificial part of it. So that's everything to do with atonement, it's called. It's everything going on at the tabernacle or later the temple, everything to do with being made right with God. And that's how we'll be using that term, the law, this morning. So the ministry of atonement at the temple was always, verse one, a shadow of the good things to come. It introduces God's people to his purposes with them, to his character. It introduces the people to God's will. But it isn't the completion of it. It was always pointing forward to something greater, fuller, more final that God would eventually do. The law, verse one, can never make perfect those who draw near. So what is perfection? Is anyone here this morning, perfect, raise your hand. Anyone? Interesting, okay, well, actually, actually, based on the way that the epistle to the Hebrews uses this term, I would say that most people in this hall this morning are perfect. This one trips us up if we think it's about our character or our behavior, but it's not. It's about being fit for purpose. It's about, or maybe about a process, reaching um, kind of an essential milestone. So a seed, right, is made perfect when it becomes a tree and blossoms. Or, you know, Nick's doing an apprenticeship as a tradie and he'll be made perfect when he muddles through that and gets licensed. Or Nathan and Anthea's house was made perfect when they could actually move out of Greg and Merrill's and get into it. None of these examples are about faultlessness, okay? But they're all fit for purpose at some point. So what's our purpose? It's nothing less than the purpose that God created all humanity for. Let me sum that up briefly. We are supposed to live in the presence of our Creator. We're supposed to enjoy His goodness and beauty and abundance in creation and in each other, and we're supposed to work with him and with each other to cultivate that whole created order to show more and more and more of who he is and what he's like. But we can't because of sin, because, verse two, of our consciousness of sins. Why do you think that stops us from fulfilling the purpose I've just described? For this, we need to talk about sin. It's our first theological pause this morning. We often think of sin as breaking the rules and feeling guilty about it. That's good because it certainly involves that. God has ordered things in a particular way, hasn't he? We call this providence sometimes. And that order, it reflects what he is like and what is good for us. 
And at points, that order includes laws or rules. And breaking with any of that order is bad. But let's add some layers. Sin includes our rebellion against the king. So that's not just that he sets the rules and we broke them. It's that he simply is the one true God and king and there is no other. It's one of the most basic definitions of what it even means to be God. Authority is his. It's fundamental to who he is and it's his eternally. But humanity rejected that and spat in his face. So we live as rebels and traitors. If our purpose is to live with him, to enjoy him, to bring glory to him, isn't it just nonsense, just absurd to think that rebels and traitors, like I've just described, could do that? He's not a petty umpire tallying up all the rules we've broken. He is a king. And why would a king tolerate traitors. Their very existence compromises his good and right authority. That's why the punishment for treason is death. It's the same logic as in pretty much every human kingdom for most of history. It's a big deal. It's a punishment that defends and affirms the authority of this king. Another layer to sin is honour and shame. This is the idea of living in a way that reflects the incredible dignity of our Lord. It's about his reputation. It's not quite the same as following the rules. There are rules, and they're there for a reason, so we should probably follow them. But, for instance, a samurai doesn't fall on his blade because he feels guilty for breaking rules. He does it because they lost a decisive battle and it reflects poorly on the dignity of his lord. The samurai is ashamed of bringing his lord's name into disrepute. It's not law-breaking, it's just failure. And in that culture, they could restore some honour and dignity by falling on their sword. It's a pretty definitive way of expressing that they, and not their lord, should bear this shame. So that's a couple of extra layers that we can add to sin. Rebellion against God's authority a stain on his dignity, his reputation, as well as guilt for wrecking his good order of things. It's not all there is to say, but we can see that sin is not one-dimensional, and so being made right with God, atonement, is also not one-dimensional. What might some of this mean for our consciousness of sins from verse 2? I've often observed and at times experienced a quite bizarre phenomenon, feeling guilty for not feeling guilty. It's just that for me, and this might be true for some of you, I don't feel personal guilt very acutely. Some people do. It wasn't a powerful feature of my conversion either. I'm not wired that way and I can't force it, I've tried. And it's pretty unhelpful then if that's the only way you have of understanding sin. Thankfully, the Bible paints a picture with a lot more texture. It turns out that I didn't actually lack a consciousness of sins. 
Because what dawned on me with terrible weight when I came to know Jesus was the realization that I was on the outside of a true and beautiful and powerful community. There is an almighty king, my Lord, and without any doubt, I was a traitor and a rebel. I wanted to be restored. I needed a way, a way in, but a way that still defended and affirmed God's authority and honour. And here's the problem from these first few verses. If there wasn't a way for this to happen convincingly, a way that gave me total confidence before God, well, then how could I possibly be fit for purpose, for knowing him personally, for glorifying him and reflecting that glory to others? That's the sort of cleansing that our consciences need. I hope this helps us to see that we aren't just sentenced to death because we broke a few of the umpire's rules. I hope this provides a thicker meaning for us whenever we read or hear or talk about sin. In the passage from verse 2, the old system could not clear the conscience of those who wanted to draw near to God. They couldn't bear to stand in his presence. Verse 3, they are constantly reminded, constantly reminded of how unfit for purpose they are. Why? Because, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, and why? Precisely because they must be sacrificed again and again and again and again. It is impossible for this to give a worshipper a real and lasting confidence as they stand before their maker. Now, what's different with Jesus? Jesus is a better sacrifice. He can make us perfect. Why is Jesus better? It's clear enough, verses five to 10, that whatever Jesus does, it works. What the offering of bulls and goats could not do perfectly, the offering of Jesus' body can. Why? From verse five, Christ says to God, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So he comes to do something more complete. The old system was offerings and sacrifices of bulls and goats. It was a system which introduced people to God's will, his will to forgive. Christ emphasizes, verse 7, I have come to do your will. As the writer puts it in verses eight to nine, Christ does away with the first in order to establish the second. And when we read that, it's very easy for us to think this is saying the old sacrificial system didn't work. But that isn't what Christ or this writer are saying. And actually, there's some huge problems with thinking that God got it wrong and had to fix it or redo it or replace it. The law wasn't faulty. It was, verse one, but a shadow of the good things to come. Not faulty, just incomplete. And remember, precisely what Christ eventually did was sacrifice himself. So what's meant then when Jesus says to God, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices? It's when worshippers fall into that trap of thinking that just doing the things makes them right with God. Dead goat, blood everywhere, good to go. 
but they forget God's will, his character, his purpose. They forget why they even need atonement in the first place. Here again from the prophet Micah, which we finished a few weeks back. Recall chapter six, here's my paraphrase. Shall I come before God with burnt offerings? He has told you what is good. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Or what about Psalm 51? David's anguished plea for mercy when he is confronted by his sin. My paraphrase again. You will not delight in sacrifice, O God. You will not be pleased with an offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Yet for Israel, neither of these passages, and there are many more like them, are saying that sacrifice doesn't matter. They can't be. The law was established by God, and the people are commanded to observe it to be made right with him. The problem isn't the sacrifice isn't um, the problem is that the sacrificial system was supposed to be a part of revealing and shaping them in God's will. So sacrifice and doing God's will were always meant to go together. Always. But far too often God's people thought that just doing the things was the magical way to be right with God. That's actually how sacrifice works in most other cultures. It's sorcery. They think the ritual or the blood is magic. Or they believe that their god or gods need sacrifice, as though it gives them power. In some religions, it it feeds them. My god will starve if I don't make sacrifices to him. This is the idea that author Neil Gaiman's American Gods exploits. Gaiman even includes Jesus. Just one more God fed by cultic worship. So, do you ever think that sometimes we come a little too near to a magical understanding of Christ's sacrifice? Let me remind you of some of our cherished songs. I come by the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. When I survey the wondrous cross, all vain things I sacrifice to his blood. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. The cross, the instrument of the sacrifice, and the blood, the result. Are they magical? Do either of those things do anything for us? I love these songs, by the way. But let's be real. This is highly encoded language. And that means it requires a lot of uh, explanation to the uninitiated. What might a watching world think we're on about? After all, Christianity is often criticised as being barbaric. Our God is bloodthirsty, they say. Not so different to the Babylonian or the Aztec gods who demand sacrifice, even his own son. What do you say to that? that doesn't sound trite, that doesn't sound like special pleading? What about visitors and seekers in our church? Welcome, by the way, if you're with us this morning. It's great to have you. As time goes by, this stuff is going to be even more foreign and confronting, and not necessarily in a good way. Have you faced these sorts of questions yourselves, from colleagues, friends, maybe from your kids? How do you talk about it 
without boiling it down to, you just have to believe. I suspect that some here may not have realised that they were holding to a mystical, magical view of Christ's sacrifice. Don't worry. Ephesians 2, verse 8, does not say that by correct theological understanding, you have been saved. Yet, surely it would be really good for our souls to try and understand these sorts of important things if we can. And so this is where we need to take another pause to talk this time about sacrifice. I hope it will add depth, maybe where necessary correction, to how we sing those wonderful songs and how we talk about what we believe. And the question we need to explore for this is, how exactly does sacrifice work in the first place? We're pretty good at understanding that Jesus is better than whatever's going on in the Old Testament, but how does sacrifice work? Like, could God have just instituted any other system for atonement and that would have been fine? A sophisticated system of interpretive dance, perhaps? Or some GPS-based team challenge, right, Tony? Just, you know, anything? Is it arbitrary? Does it matter? It's not arbitrary. Firstly, because the wages of sin is death. We've already looked at why. And yet, from the very beginning, God went about providing a way to be made right with him. It's because, interwoven with those things we talked about before, his authority, his dignity, his providence, interwoven with these is his love and his grace and mercy. Alongside his wrath for our treason is his anguish, his anguish, his broken heart that his image bearers, his children, can no longer see his face and they can no longer share with him in every wonderful thing that he is doing. It is God's will, God's will, to forgive and restore, but he must also uphold his authority, dignity, and providence. That's why death is central to sacrifice. A reminder, like in verse three, a reminder of the damage, a reminder of the cost. At the same time, even the bulls and the goats are gods, aren't they? He created them. What can a human actually offer God to atone for their sin? The system is provided by God. All of the elements of the system, like the bulls and goats, those are provided by God. And in all this, the true power of the system is provided by God. Not death, not blood, not magic, but mercy and self-giving. Verse 10, by God's will, we have been made perfect. And when a true worshiper approaches God, the whole ritual, sacrificial system helps them to know his righteousness and his mercy more concretely, more immediately. Remember some of those ideas that we started with today. Some things are just hard to reckon with and we need help to really grasp it. 
It's hard to conceive of God. God is spirit. God is light. God is a consuming fire. What do you do with that? It's hard to grasp. How do you then grasp his grace? The whole sacrificial system is supposed to help the worshipper to focus on it, to grasp it. They can see and smell the gruesome death of a goat, and they know it should be them. They know that in this whole system, God is providing a way. The priest pronounces them absolved, and for a time, they can experience a wonder and a gratitude that helps them to walk with God a little longer. By the way, this is why we need the Lord's Supper and why Jesus gave it to us. It's not magic, but it helps us refocus on the grace of God in a way that we can participate together. And now all of this, it is exactly the same with Jesus, only so much greater. After all, that wasn't all of verse 10, was it? It says, by God's will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. That through idea just there, it doesn't refer to magic. It's about the invisible reality made visible so we can really know what God is like. In it, we see the gracious will of God, his will to forgive and to restore by doing everything necessary, by doing it himself, even to death. Where bulls and goats were just a shadow, verse one, the true form is God made flesh in Christ, his son, so that we may really finally know him. A body has God prepared for him, verse five. The Lord's Supper reenacts all of this. We see him die. We realize it should have been us. Our experience of his grace is refreshed. But there's no sacrifice anymore. We don't have to do it again and again and again. Sinful human priests must stand, stand at their work, repeating the sacrifices again and again. Verse 11. What's different with Jesus, verse 12, when he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down. He's not standing at his service, at his duty. It is finished. Because, verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who approach God. When we approach God, we don't come by the blood. It's not that the blood of goats and bulls is magical and the blood of Christ is just the best, most powerful form of magic. We come by his self-giving grace, which is tangible to us, made real to us, focused in that ultimate self-giving sacrifice. The self-sacrifice of God in Christ exposes a grace so powerful that we may rest totally assured. What does Ephesians 2.8 actually say? 
by grace you have been saved. We are right with God because it is his will. Because of the self-giving sacrifice of God in Christ, God can say, verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. We don't have to harbour any doubt. When it comes to standing in his presence, fit for purpose once more, once for all time, our consciences are perfectly cleansed by his grace. Gracious God and Father, from the beginning you alone have made a way. We taste your righteousness and mercy in the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord. Strengthen us to know and do your will, just as he does. For your glory we ask these things in his name. Amen.